song and in the study of the word. So I hope you have your Bible with you this morning. Would you go ahead and open your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there is a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, and if you're new to the Bible, uh, you'll find Ephesians kind of towards the back. Uh, and don't be afraid to use the table of contents if you want. Or uh, here's your page number. If you're using the pew Bible, you'll find Ephesians chapter 3 on page 1037. Uh, so I want to encourage you to have your Bible open and uh, study along with us well this morning. We're in a sermon series on prayer. We've been considering prayer from all these different perspectives, and our goal in this study has been that we would both improve our prayer lives and deepen our prayer lives. And so we started in Luke 11, where we were given words to pray and a description of our generous Heavenly Father who responds to our prayers. Luke 18 taught us to pray diligently, as well as to pray with humility. Romans 15 taught us the pivotal role of player in seeing the gospel go out to the nations where Christ has not been named. Romans chapter 8 revealed to us the stunning truth that God the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us. God the Spirit prays for us in ways that are imperceptible but perfectly aligned with the will of the Father. Last week, Psalm 51 was a prayer for spiritual restoration. And today... We're going to learn about intercessory prayer. It's prayer for other people. When you pray for other people, what do you pray? What's the content of that prayer? Oftentimes, we will pray for an end to their struggles, or we will pray for a healing of some sickness, or we might pray for their hard times to come to an end. Our friend will say, here's the thing, I need you to pray for me, and either we will pray their solution to their problem or we'll pray our solution to their problem. And that itself might just be the problem that when we come to God, we are praying our solutions to these situations rather than seeing to it that God's will is accomplished in the life of the people we love and we pray for. In effect, whenever we pray our solutions to our problems, we turn God into our servant. We're saying, God, here's the problem. I need to inform you of that. God, here's the solution. I need you to do it this way according to my wants. In Jesus' name, amen. And to be fair, it's not that we come to God condescending to him or belittling him. But there is a way in which we can just mindlessly pray our own solutions to the problems that we face or people we love face and we do so with little thought to the will of God. One pastor and writer named William Barclay said this. He said, it so often happens that in prayer we are really saying, thy will be changed. When we ought to be saying, thy will be done. The first object of prayer is not so much to speak to God as to listen to him. So when we pray for others, we don't just need to pray our solution to their problems or their solution to their problems. What we need to pray is the will of God for this person who bears his name. That's the very heart of all prayer. So what if you could pray a Bible-saturated prayer for the people you care about with confidence that it is perfectly in line with the will of God. Would you like to pray that way? Would you pray that way 
if you knew how to pray in line with the will of God. Well, that's what we learned today from Ephesians chapter 3. Here at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes out one of his prayers. He says, this is my prayer for you. And, and his prayer is for Christians in the church at Ephesus, but it's a prayer that transcends those geographical boundaries and those time boundaries. It's a prayer for the whole church. And what we're going to do today is we're, we're going to put ourselves in Paul's seat so that his words become our words. His prayer becomes our prayer. As Paul prays for fellow believers, so you and I want to be the kind of people that pray for the people in our lives perfectly aligned with the will of God. My goal today is to teach you to pray the will of God for the people in your life. And who are the people in your life? Your spouse, if you're married, your kids, if you have kids, co-workers and neighbors, family members whom you adore, your brothers and sisters, your spiritual mothers and fathers in the faith. Who are the people in your life that need you to pray for them, and how can you pray God's will for them? So Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21 is Paul's prayer for the church, and in it we find four petitions, four things that you and I want to pray as we pray for one another. Follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul writes this. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. It is a classic Paul passage. In the original Greek, it is one continuous sentence. Paul loves a long run-on sentence. And he just piles phrase on top of phrase on top of phrase. We get all this long, complicated grammar happening here in uh, just a small amount of space. But within this paragraph, we have four petitions. He's praying for four specific things for those who hear these words. And these are the things that we want to pray for the people in our lives as well. There's a fairly simple structure to this passage, and then there's a more complicated one. But the simple one is this. It starts and ends with words of praise about God. Those are the bookends of this passage. Speech about God ends with speech about God, and sandwiched in between all that God talk are these prayer requests. Here's what I'm praying for you to a God who's worthy of praise and a God who's worthy of praise. This God, in all of his power, all of his glory, all that he deserves, this is the God who's going to care for you as he attends to your needs in these ways. And so how can we use this prayer to guide and inform our own praying for the people in our lives? There's four things for us to pray for one another, four prayers in line with the will of God. And the first one is this. When you pray, you're going to pray this. God, strengthen them by faith 
in Christ. Strengthen them by faith in Christ. I'm giving you um, just a a summary statement here as the teaching point. Uh, And you can find the more specific language here in verse 16. But our prayer is God, strengthen them by faith in Christ. Anytime you pray this prayer for someone in your life, you're praying God's will for them. God, strengthen them by their faith in Christ. In verses 14 and 15, Paul begins by describing his motivation for praying for the Ephesian Christians. You see that in verse 14, he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father. Well, what's the reason that Paul is kneeling? The way you and I normally read and we treat literature, we might think Paul is about to reveal that reason, but the way Paul writes, he's telling us, I've already given you the reason. So he's pointing backwards. For this reason, I kneel before the Father in prayer. He's pointing to something he's already said. And at the end of chapter 2, what we find is that Paul has described uh, the very nature of salvation. How is anyone saved? It's by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ that those from Jewish backgrounds and those from Gentile backgrounds uh, are saved. And then in chapter 2, he describes how God is bringing all of these various people together in one united family. It's incredible the way Paul sees the the impact of the gospel on human relationships. So in the church, there's this one new family made of people from every possible background, every possible place and story and economic status and social status. It's all one family by faith in Jesus Christ. So as he ends chapter 2, he says, God's building out of you a temple in which he dwells it's metaphorical language it's poetic language but he says God is building you into this holy place where he dwells and he's exalted and worshiped since God's building you into this thing Paul says that's the reason I pray since he's saved you by your faith in Christ and he's uniting you together by that same faith in Christ this is why I kneel before the father In other words, Paul's saying, God is at work among you. And since God is working in your midst, my prayer is that God's work will be accomplished in you. And that's a great reason to pray for anyone. You don't have to know a thing about what's happening in their life, but because you know something of God, you know he's always working in the lives of his people. And so when you sit down this week and you write out a card to this dear friend that you've been praying for, it might start this way. You might say, I'm praying for you because I know God is at work in your life. I don't know the details, but I know God, and I know He's at work in your life. I'm praying His work would be accomplished in you. So Paul says, I kneel before the Father, verse 15, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. What's he mean by that? That every family in heaven and on earth is named for the Father. That's strange because... Uh, I'm named after my dad. My family name is Busby. Do you know what a Busby is? A Busby is a tall, fuzzy hat like the ones worn by British guards at Buckingham Palace. That's a Busby. So how can Paul say every family in heaven on earth is named after the father when I'm named after a tall, fuzzy hat? That's a fair question. Well, what Paul is getting at here is not a description of every single individual family unit on the planet. Rather, he's speaking of the family of faith. The family of faith made up of people from every nation on earth, 
every background, every people group. That church that God is building together, all of it bears his name. There are not some who are name bearers and some who are not. Everyone whose faith is in Christ belongs to the one same family of faith. And so Paul continues then and says, okay, since the Father whose name you bear is at work in you, then verse 16, here's the petition, I pray that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power. According to what? Where's the source of that strength that he prays for us? Is it according to what you deserve? That's not what he says. Is it according to what you have earned? Is it according to what you promised to pay back to God? Or is it according to your potential? No to all of those. It is according to the riches of his glory. Paul is praying that God will do something in you out of his infinite, abundant, never-dwindling, inflation-proof, depression-proof riches of his glory. That out of that infinite abundance, he would strengthen you with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It's a prayer for strength. At this point, he doesn't talk much about the purpose of that strength. That's going to come in a moment. But he talks about the source of that strength. Where do we find that source? Or where do we find that strength? Where is it located? He, he says, first, it's a strength that comes from power in your inner being through his spirit. And then second, he says, it's a strength that comes from Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. It's a lot going on inside of you. You thought it was indigestion. Here we've got God the Spirit dwelling in us. We've got God the Son uh, in a residence in our heart. All of this is going on. And it's a lot. And Paul's prayer is that the Father would give you strength from the indwelling Spirit and the indwelling Son. Now, you might say at this point, hey, that's a little confusing because... My understanding has always been that it's just God the Spirit who dwells in believers. And that's true. That's the clear testimony of Scripture. But sometimes Paul speaks of the indwelling Spirit and the indwelling Christ interchangeably. So he does that here. He speaks of Spirit and the Christ indwelling us, not as two different tenants living inside us, but rather as one in the same. He does the same thing in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. Preacher and scholar John Stott explains it this way. He says, it is precisely by the Spirit that Christ dwells in our hearts, and it is strength he gives us when he dwells there. So this is not Paul practicing Trinitarian confusion. Rather, this is Paul articulating Trinitarian fullness. How is it that Jesus, at the end of Matthew 28, can say, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age, and then he takes off and ascends into heaven. How can he make that promise? That's, that promise is true by the indwelling Spirit. By faith in Christ, the Spirit abides in us. So it's notable that the strength Paul prays for us resides in our inner being. It's not evidenced by big muscles great deeds or accumulation of great amounts of stuff, that strength is evidenced by great faith, by unwavering faith. Do you have anyone in your life that needs this prayer? 
Who do you know that needs strength in their inner person, supplied by God the Father's riches and glory, and produced by the indwelling Spirit and Christ by faith? Who in your life, a specific person, needs that strength from God? What kind of situation might a person be facing when you pray this for them? When we pray for people we care about, again, we'll often pray just for hardships to end, and that's not necessarily wrong, but that might not always be the right prayer. It might not always be the mature prayer. But I'll never forget a quote I read once from a Chinese Christian, Chinese pastor, who was describing the way they ask non-Chinese Christians to pray for them in their persecution. Here's the line. He said, don't pray for the persecution to stop. Pray for stronger backs to endure. And that's the prayer of God's will. That's a prayer for strength in the inner person by the indwelling spirit and faith in Christ. Trinitarian strength is called upon for people going through trials here. So who do you know that needs that prayer? We're going to pray for them right now. At the end of each of these four teaching points, we're going to just take a brief moment to pray for someone by name so that we practice now what we're going to do later. Don't pray for everyone. Pray for one person or pray for one family. You'll have time after our gathering this morning to pray for everyone that you know in this way. But right now, I want you to think of one specific person, one name or one family, and I want you to pray this prayer for them. Pray that God would give them his strength to endure the trial that they're facing. Let's take a moment right now and just pray in the silence of your own heart. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do we pray for others? First, we pray God's strength for them. This is a prayer that is always in line with the will of God. Strengthen them by power in their inner person. There's a second way we pray. The second prayer is God, make them powerful in love. Every time you pray this prayer, you are praying the will of God for someone. God, make them powerful in love. The second line of verse 17 is a prayer request all its own. It's just one line, and, and we might be inclined to just lump it in with the rest or with everything that comes before. That wouldn't be inappropriate, but this one line stands alone uh, as a prayer request of its own, and it's this. Paul says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love. Paul has just prayed that uh, these uh, people that the church would be strengthened, but now he speaks of the purpose of that strength. Why do they need to be strong? 
it. They need to be strong so that they can be rooted and established in love. He's praying that the Father, out of the riches of his glory, would strengthen us by the indwelling spirit and faith in Christ so that we would be powerful in his love. He gives us two metaphors here, rooted and established. Rooted is an agricultural metaphor. To be rooted in something means uh, the source of my nourishment is found in this thing. So to be rooted in love is specifically to be rooted in the love of Christ. My roots go deep. He's the soil where I find my nourishment, where I find my stability. I draw all my strength, all my life, all my encouragement, all that I need to make it, I find for my roots going deep into an experience of the love of Christ. The other metaphor is established. That's an architectural metaphor. It's speaking of a foundation. Not only is the love of Christ the, the soil into which our roots grow deep, it is the foundation on which we build our lives. And when your life is built on the foundation of Christ's love, then your words and your deeds take on the loving nature of Christ. To speak of someone being rooted in Christ's love might describe an inner disposition, but to speak of someone whose life is founded on Christ's love is to speak of the way they live their lives. So when I'm praying, God, establish this person in your love, I'm praying that the way they live would reflect the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. So Paul's praying that the infinite strength of God would be given to us so that we might be rooted and established in love. How astounding is this? If God gave you the opportunity to use his omnipotence on just one thing, anything, you've got one go at it. God says, here it is. Here's all of my infinite strength and power. You can... Pray anything you want, and whatever that one thing is, I will apply my infinite power to it. What would you pray for? What would you apply the omnipotence to God to, given the opportunity? World peace? No more sickness? End daylight savings time? How are we a civilized people, and we are still doing daylight savings time, it's dark at 4 o'clock, and I'm sitting at my desk ready for dinner. I cannot function. <laughs> what would you use God's omnipotence for? Paul prays that the power of God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son would strengthen us to be people nourished and built by love. Power is often matched with something else, power and authority. Power and protection, power and victory, power and control. I'm not aware of many instances in human history where mankind has paired power with love. But God has. His omnipotence finished our salvation at the cross. The perfect marriage of power and love is seen there. And so as his children, we should resemble our father. We should be nourished by his love and build our lives on it. And can you think of anyone in your life who needs this kind of prayer? And what kind of situation might a person face in which they would need you to pray that they would be powerful in the love of Christ? God, let their roots go deep. Build their lives on this foundation. Give them your strength, your power to be people who love like Christ has loved us.
And if you're drawing a blank as to who that person might be in your life, just look right around this room because I'm telling you, your church needs you to pray this for us. What kind of church do you want us to be, Lord? A church rooted and established in love. You could pray that for your brothers and sisters in the faith. And let's take a moment and pray that right now. Get a name, get a family. Who's the person? And let's take a moment and pray for them that they would be rooted and established in love. So we're going to pray first for the strength of God, and we're going to pray second for power in love. And the third thing we're going to pray for them, God, may they know Christ's love. So we just prayed for them to be powerful in love. Now we're praying that they would know Christ's love. And every time you pray for someone to understand, to comprehend, to know the love of Christ, you are praying God's will for them. You can have confidence in that every time you pray. And Paul articulates this request for the Ephesian church in verses 18 and 19. He says, may they be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the length and width, height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. Now, when or Paul's primary request here, his petition here is comprehension. It's knowledge of Christ's love. Let them comprehend with all the saints the love of God. Let them know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. When Paul prayed that we would be rooted in love, he's praying for our hearts. And when he prayed that we would be established in love, he's praying for our hands. And when he prays that we will comprehend Christ's love, he's praying for our minds. And look again at verse 18, Paul's prayer for the church, that they may be able to comprehend with all the saints, the love of God. So who are the saints that Paul is speaking of? Well, he's speaking of all believers. The same as he did in verse 15 when he spoke of every family in heaven and on earth. This is a callback to everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ. When Paul uses the term saints in his writings, he, he's never using it in the way the Roman Catholic Church would use the term. Uh, he uses the term saint to describe all the sanctified ones, all the holy ones, everyone whose faith is in Jesus Christ. You are saints. That doesn't mean you are uh, saints in waiting and one day you'll be elevated to saintliness. He means that right now, by your faith in Christ, you are a sanctified one. Uh, we are a body of saints, a priesthood of believers. Uh, and don't miss this. When, when Paul says, uh, prays for us that we would comprehend the love of God, What's the location where that comprehension uh, comes to bear in our lives? It is with all the saints. How do we come to know and experience the love of God in full? It is with 
all the saints, with our brothers and sisters in the church. There is something an isolated Christian can know about the love of Christ, but for us to understand it to the greatest degree that we can, to grow in that knowledge, to mature in our faith, we need to be with all the saints, with our brothers and sisters in the church. And what is it we're to comprehend about the love of God? Paul gives us some spatial dimensions. He says we're to comprehend what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love. It's tough to know exactly what Paul has in mind when he gives us these dimensions. And we probably shouldn't try too hard or too literally to identify what is meant there. I like what one pastor said. He, he said the length of Christ's love, it's, it's long enough to last for all eternity. And Christ's love is wide enough to bring in all those who call on him by faith. And it is high enough to exalt us to the highest heavens. And it is deep enough to reach down and rescue the most desperate sinner. The love of Christ is massive and beautiful. And it is for us to understand and comprehend. But here's the strange part of the petition. Paul prays that we would know the love of Christ... And then he turns right around and he says, yeah, but this is a love that surpasses knowledge. I want you to know something that you can never fully know. And so I think what Paul's getting at here is that there is something we can know, we can comprehend and understand about the inexhaustible love of Christ. But we will never understand it in full on this side of glory. There's a, a, this rich treasure for us to experience but we, we can't know all of it here and now. But still, we're going to pray. And with all the saints, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to pursue this knowledge of the love of Christ. If I were not a follower of Jesus, I would stop right here as I'm reading through this. And, and I would want to begin to ask myself, what do I understand of the love of Jesus? I would want to test my presuppositions and my conclusions that have come from all kinds of different uh, religious experiences, perhaps, and personal experiences, for sure. What do I understand of the love of Jesus? And here's what I would hope you would understand from the Bible this morning, is that understanding Christ's love begins with something negative about ourselves. Every one of us in this room are sinners who have separated ourselves from God's love by our sin. Sin is what we do, it is who we are. Every one of us are by nature objects of wrath. If you were to go back and read Ephesians chapter 2, that's what you'll find at the very beginning of that. Every one of us is dead in sin because of our own sin. But now this is where the love of Christ begins to unfold in a beautiful way. He loves you and shows it in this way. God the Father sent God the Son to die for your sin. The only way that sin is resolved is through sacrifice. It's through death. That's how God's economy works. And for a sacrifice to work for you, it has to be a perfect sacrifice. The only perfect sacrifice for your sin is Jesus Christ. He's God in the flesh. And so he went to the cross and died in your place for your sin. You don't deserve that. None of us deserve it. None of us have earned it. He did it because he loves you. He did it as an act of grace. And three days after he died, he rose from the dead. And his promise to you, because he loves you, is that if you will call on his name, you'll be saved. If I understood 
the smallest thing about the love of Christ, then today I don't want to give my life to that one who loves me infinitely and totally. And I remember when I did come to understand that. I'd been in the church for a while, but as a teenager, finally, I got a glimpse. I understood the love of Christ. Not the merit of Cody, but the love of Christ. And I gave my life to him, and you should do the same today. I would love to talk with you this morning before you leave this building about what it is to give your life to Jesus Christ. You need to turn from your sin and turn to him. It is the most urgent thing in your life today. There is nothing more important than your eternity, I promise you. And you are loved by God. He's proven that. Today, you've got to say yes to him. We're going to pray that the people in our lives would know Christ's love. And what type of situation do you think a person might be facing in which they would need this kind of prayer? I have a vivid memory from one of my seminary classes several years ago. Uh, one of my fellow classmates came into class very emotional because her father had passed away unexpectedly. And our professor was a seasoned pastor, a wise man. And so he stopped everything, and we gathered around our classmate, and our professor led us in prayer for her. And for some reason, this one particular line stuck with me, and I've prayed it hundreds of times since that day for myself and for other people. But he prayed this. He said, God, do not take her out of her grief, but with every tear and every step, let her know that you are with her and you love her. He's praying that she would understand something about the love of Christ. That she would know something about the love of Christ. That in the inevitable heartache she was going to go through in the days and years ahead, she must understand that the love of Christ has not failed her and will not fail her. He's, he's carrying her through all the way. And can you think of anyone in your life that needs that prayer today? Let's take a moment and pray for that person. Let's pray for someone by name right now who needs to know Christ's love. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, you know these names. May they know the love of Christ. Amen. So we've prayed for God's strength. We've prayed for the power to love. We've prayed for the knowledge of Christ's love. The fourth and final petition is this. God, fill them with your fullness. We'll explain what that means in just a moment. God, fill them with your fullness. Every time you pray this prayer for someone in your life, you are praying the will of God for them. Without question, you can have confidence when you're praying, God, fill my kids with your fullness. You're praying the will of God for them. For your spouse, for your friends, your loved ones, you're praying the will of God. It's found here at the end of verse 19. Paul says, 
Uh, he's praying for them so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what does that mean to be filled with the fullness of God? Well, Paul uses this phrase only just in a couple of other places in his writings. And it's the only place we find it in the Bible. And whenever he uses it, he's using it to describe the way the totality of God, the full deity of God the Father, dwells in God the Son. So, uh, for example, Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul writes, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That's to dwell in Christ. So it's Paul's way of saying full deity of God, the totality of God the Father is present in Jesus. When he prays that we would be filled with the fullness of God, he's not praying that we would take on deity the way Jesus is God in the flesh, but rather he's saying that God's fullness or totality is the level up to which we should be filled. He's not praying God fill them to the fullness that, that they can tolerate. God fill them to your fullness. And ultimately, when we're praying for this, for another person, it's a prayer for holiness. It's a prayer for perfection, a spiritual perfection. N not that we can attain perfection on this side of glory, but that we would pattern our lives in the direction of the holiness of God, distancing ourselves from sin and flourishing in righteousness. Fill them with the fullness of yourself. You're praying, God, sanctify them. Make them holy. Make them like you. God, fill that tiny vessel with all of yourself that you can cram into it until the day they see you face to face. Fill them with all the fullness of yourself. Having stated this final petition, Paul then closes this section with a doxology. Verses 20 and 21 are such an outburst of emotion. I think Paul writes these words and then he throws his pen down, and he does a victory lap wherever he is. He has a praise service because you can, I can't help but read emotion out of these words in verses 20 and 21. Now to him who's able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. He doesn't say that monotone. He doesn't say it quiet. I think he erupts in praise as he speaks these words. And so his praise informs his prayer requests as well. And he praises God who's able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think. Verse 19, Paul told us that the love of Christ is beyond understanding. And now he tells us the activity of God is beyond expectation or thought. You cannot out-invent God. Every solution you have to every problem in your life, God knows infinitely more, and He knows exactly how He's going to use it for His glory in your life. And the most amazing thing about the work of God is not just that it exceeds all of our expectations or is more wonderful than we could ever imagine, though those things are true. The most amazing thing in verse 20 is that this Power is already at work in us. We just read that line and no one took off running. That power is already at work in us. What power is the power that's at work in you? What's well, the power that created all things out of nothing? It's the power that put living breath in the first man and the first woman. It's the power that 
set Israel free from slavery in Egypt. It's the power that parted the Red Sea so God's children could cross it on dry land. It's the power that gave them the keys to the promised land. It's the power that brought Israel back out of exile and had King Cyrus pay the bills for that. It's the power that built a nation through whom all nations on earth would be blessed. It's the power that promised the coming Messiah. The power that's at work in you even right now is the power that fulfilled that promise when it was born to the Virgin Mary. It's the power that cast out demons and healed lepers and gave sight to the blind and gave hearing to the deaf and gave the dead back to their families. And it walked on water and it calmed the storm and it cast out demons. That's the power that's at work in you right now. It's the power that took the punches of religious authorities and took the Roman whip and took our cross and absorbed the wrath of God for our sin and bore all the humiliation of the crowd around it. That's the power that's at work in you. It's the power that died on the cross. And it's the power that three days later rose from the dead. And it's the power that uh, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father even now. It's the power that's coming again and one day soon. The power that will crush Satan once and for all. The power that will take us to be with him in that holy eternal city where there is no night, there is no sickness, there is no mourning, there is no crying, there is no pain, there is no more death, there is life everlasting. It's the power that will be praised forever by a family that bears his name. A family made of people from every nation on earth. That is the power that is already at work in you. Praise God with me. <laughs> to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Who do you know that needs to be filled with the fullness of God? Who do you know that needs to know that that power is already at work in them? Let's pray for them right now. Fill them with your fullness, that power already at work in them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So your friend comes to you and says, man, I'm going through a tough time. Here's the solution. I need you to pray this solution for me. In light of Ephesians chapter 3, how would you answer? You might say, well, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. Here's what I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that God would strengthen you. And that you would be powerful in the love of Christ. And that you will understand the love of Christ in this situation. And that you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. And your friend would say, hey, I don't need all of that. I, I just need this thing to be fixed. 
To which you would say, God is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. So when you pray for people in your life, pray the strength of God for them and the power of Christ's love and the knowledge of Christ's love and the fullness of God for them. And when you pray for people, pray for them according to the will of God. Not my invented solution or even their invented solution as, as, as well-intended as those might be, but bank your prayer on the will of God. When our prayers are shaped by the word of God as they have been this morning, then we can have confidence that we're praying God's will. Don't just pray for people. Pray God's will for people. And what should you pray when you pray for yourself? You should just sit right here in Ephesians chapter 3, and you should pray these words for yourself until you also have praise to give to God. And don't just pray for yourself. Pray the will of God for yourself. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, John wrote these words, This is the confidence we have before God if we ask anything according to his will. He hears us. So brothers and sisters, let us come with confidence before the throne of grace, kneel before our Father whose name we bear, and pray this for each other, thy will be done. Father God, we praise you for your word to us that gives us the words to pray. If we are to pray your will, we must hear your voice. God, may we be found sitting with your word open today and every day this week. Holy Spirit, inspire us as we read your word and inform our praying that we might align our prayers with your will. And we praise you, God of strength, God of power, indwelling spirit, Christ who dwells in us by faith, the God who is already at work in us. We praise your holy name. and We trust you. And we are glad to be your people. There is no God like you. Father, thank you for your love shown to us at the cross and your love that carries us all the way to that eternal day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?